I've still got vivid memories of main roads when they had a massive bath there and I'd go in after training, all the players had been in it and it was like really warm and there was like dirt and grass floating in it and it was heaven. Meet Danny Donachie. Danny is head of medicine for Everton Football Club and a transformational coach. He was born in Manchester and grew up between Manchester and the United States. His dad is legendary Manchester City player Willie Donachie, who instilled in him a deep interest in mindfulness, meditation, spirituality and of course football. Danny has trained in meditation and yoga for over 30 years, even travelling to India to take part in silent retreats. And now his work goes beyond injuries and medical needs by being a friend to players and infusing spiritual practices with his inherent love of football and people. So I wanted to know, how do you encourage players to take mindfulness onto the pitch? And what lessons can be learned from mixing two seemingly opposing worlds? I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Dransfield PR, and this is We Built This City. Danny, welcome to We Built This City. Thanks, Lisa. Nice to see you. I've been wanting to get you on for ages. I know, sorry. (laughs) You drew the line at being online to do the interview, didn't you? So we're in person and that's going to be much better, of course. So you're a partly bred Greater Mancunian and you were born in St Mary's Hospital, which so was I. Really? Yeah, I was, yeah. And then you lived in Point until you were six, is that right? Yeah. Moved to the States until you were about 11. Yeah. And then came back to school in Manchester where you've been living ever since. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. More I or lived less. in New York for a couple of years. Oh, that sounds very glamorous. What was that for? It's, well, it's not as glamorous <laughs> as it sounds. <laughs> no, I was working as a physio in a private clinic. It right. was a really great experience because I was in my early 20s, so lived in downtown Manhattan and yeah, it was great. Amazing. That yeah. sounds fantastic. <laughs> so... um First of all, I just want to explain how I first met you six years ago, approximately, I think it was. So, Charlene McCauley, who used to work for Roland Dransfield, had gone on to set up a yoga business and she'd been doing yoga classes for some time. And she'd been doing yoga classes with the players at Everton, hadn't she? And I was having some private yoga lessons with her. And she, one day she said to me, Lisa, you're doing all this stuff for people. What are you doing for you? So I thought that was a good question. I started to cry, which obviously you'll be able to relate to, Danny. And she took one look at me and she said, you need to see Danny. So I said, who's Danny? What does he do? And she said, you just need to meet him. And when she said that, it was a kind of a a moment in my life. And I thought, there's a reason she's telling me this and it must be important. So we spoke on the phone and I said, great, Danny, I'd like to meet you. What do you do? And you just said, I'll just come and see you. You came to see me. I think I cried the first three sessions we had, but it was life changing. But I still not really managed to describe what you do. So can you tell us? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think you said that to me on the phone call, in actual fact. Yeah, so uh, when you were speaking, Lisa, I started to feel something in my heart. And I'm not sure what that feeling was, but it's kind of like sadness, but also like I kind of think the connection that we've got, you know, everything that we went through from that moment. And it's funny because you say we spoke on the phone. That first time we spoke, I can remember it as if it was yesterday. I know where I was in my old house. I I can remember the day. It was an autumn day. I could see the leaves outside. So there's something about that connection. And I guess that's what I kind of work with. I kind of work with individuals and groups, and it's about helping them to go beyond their habitual patterns, whether it's mental or physical. And then there's something beyond that that, I kind of tap into and basically for me it's about 
getting myself out of the way and then something kind of magical happens between mm. me and the person or, or the group. Mm. Well, so get myself out of the way. That's all I need to do. Right. It's interesting. I mean, I remember exactly where I was when I had that conversation with you and I was driving through Gorse Hill and I remember that on the way home from work. Um, and then when... I'm, you know, don't generally open my door and let strange men into my house. <laughs> but I remember on that day when you came in, I had this immediate sense of that I was in good hands and I felt a sense of peace, which I've always done with you over the years. And obviously the nature of the work that we've done together has changed and it's gone in different ways when I've needed support in different areas. But there's always that feeling of we're on the same page. Do you feel that with everybody or that you work with or... And do you have to feel that in order to be able to work with them? I feel like, um, I guess that somebody would have to feel that to some degree to want to work with me. Mm. But like I say, it's about getting myself out of the way. And when you do that, when you put the ego to the side, there's a natural connection with everyone. You know, I wrote a piece last week about taking Theo to university, my son, Mm. and how I've totally been floored by that, um, which I wasn't expecting. But... My old teacher said to me that if you feel that pure love for a member of your family, that is available to feel that to everyone, Mm. you know, and he experienced that feeling for everyone. Mm. So I feel like if I was able to get myself out of the way enough, then I could feel that connection. But I'm just I'm just really curious about people. I love watching people. I love hearing about their lives and I love hearing about the things that they do and and the problems that they have. And... Because I work with a lot of top-level footballers and stuff like that, I think people expect that they have these like amazing lives because they've got all this money, they're doing this great job, and they expect them to be happy. And the reality is totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, they're normal people. They have the same fears and limitations that everybody has. So when I started noticing that, it just it makes you want to work with everyone, really, and help them grow. And it's about helping people have insights about where their limitations are Mm -hmm. because you can't help someone move beyond a a limitation. They have to do it themselves. It's about awareness. Mm. Yeah, because when we met each other, I think very soon on you said to me, everything you need, you have. And I thought, what on earth is he talking about? (laughs) That's not true. At the time, I think I felt I needed a lot of validation and approval from people. Um, but then you, there's a book, wasn't there, by Jared Kite that you also got for me, Everything You Need You Have. And, and I remember one day, probably 18 months later, and it just hit me all of a sudden. I thought, I've got everything I need. It's all inside. I don't need to be searching outside. And that is an incredibly liberating moment and a gift that, you know, that you gave me, I think, by the work that we'd done. Yeah, well, it's amazing to hear that. But what the way I feel is that, you know, when I met you, you were incredibly successful. You'd done so much with your life. You'd brought up two kids. Um, You'd made this successful business. You've made great relationships with people. And I feel like at that point, maybe you just didn't see that yourself enough. And whether I helped you see that more or or what, I don't know. But I'm happy that you now know it (laughs) yeah thank you absolutely and it is incredible because you do really appreciate the small things and you claim your successes which is something that I think is important and often we're told that's an egotistical thing but I think sometimes to take stock of 
what you've done and like you say with some of the very high profile people that you've worked with to the outsider it looks like of course they are successful and they are aware of you know their achievements but in actual fact they're struggling with the same things that we all struggle with of course yeah yeah i'll never forget i did an nlp course it was probably about 15 or 20 years ago and on the back of that i thought right in pre-season i'm going to speak to every player and kind of work on something with them throughout the season, mm. something that, that they can improve. So it was a very basic process, but I asked them all what were their strengths and what were their weaknesses. Mm. And most of them, these are international footballers, couldn't tell me any of their strengths. And they just give me a long list of weaknesses. I'm like, what? Mm. what is going on here? How can this be? But obviously it's natural because just because they're footballers, they're no different. Mm. And people project things onto them. You know, they think they're like, gods yeah um but obviously they're not so yeah that, that was a really good thing to see and the other side of it is that they have loads of money as well and it makes no difference to happiness no. you know that i always say that it's they're lucky to have money because they know that it doesn't make you happy whereas if you're chasing it you don't know that yet that's really interesting they know that money doesn't make them happy yeah well, some of them yeah, I'm still saying. don't realise. <laughs> no, no, true. But you're right, if you've not got it and you think, and if you spend your life thinking money and chasing money, then that's going to be such a, it's not a great journey, is it? You're wasting no. so much of what no. you could achieve. Yeah. Like the other side of it is some of our players come from extreme poverty mm. and for them to have that security, it's a great foundation mm. and then they can help people in their countries yes. like... Yerry Mina, for example, from Colombia, he's got a big foundation. He started that when he was 19 mm. and he, he helps hundreds mm. of kids, yeah. you know, so you can make a real difference in life as well. And a lot of people, a lot of players in particular have been doing that, haven't they? I mean, they've always done it, but in the last 18 months or so, I mean, you've seen so much of that where footballers are using their, their wealth and their, their resources to help other yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. obviously Marcus Rashford yeah. that you know well about. Yeah. And it makes me laugh because a lot of people say that he should be concentrating on his football, but there's a lot of evidence to show that for all athletes, if they have different facets to their life and different ways and, and that they can inspire people and feel inspired, it helps them as mm. people and footballers. Mm. Because if you just have a one-dimensional life, whether it's a footballer or whatever, it leads to trouble because you get identified with that and nobody is that identity. No, absolutely. So in the work that you do at Everton then as Director of Medicine? Yeah. It's not just medicine, is it? It's not just ligaments and injuries and stuff. It's, you seem to do way more than that in terms of kind of the mindfulness work that you do in the coaching work you do with the players. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you said before we spoke about my dad bringing things in. When I first started at Everton, I was heavily into yoga. And my first week there, at the end of the day, I just do my own yoga practice. Um, and the players kind of saw me. So on the Friday morning of the first week at Everton, um, Duncan Ferguson <laughs> walks into the treatment room <laughs> holding his neck and he, and he goes to the head physio, who was my boss at the time, he goes, I can't play tomorrow, I've hurt my neck and it's his fault because I was doing <laughs> yoga at home, I was watching him. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. So he gets me in the office and the manager got me in and he, the manager was Walter Smith at the time and he was like, he was really kind. He said, look, don't worry, don't worry. I understand and it's nothing to do with you. So that was how I started with yoga. And then, you know, just through my natural curiosity and my love of yoga and meditation, players kind of ask you to do things and it kind of builds through that. So now I do, 
well, not going into too much detail, but I do kind of physical treatments, but more into getting into the unconscious and, and the psyche as well. And that brings trauma from the body out. So I do that work with players, which is really mm-hmm. powerful. Um, and then meditation. And I do work as a coach with them as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's interesting because I was a bit worried a couple of years ago that players at a certain age were leaving the club, like my friends like Leighton Baines, who mm-hmm. I'd worked with for a long time. And then the younger players had like a different energy. But it's interesting because now I've got real strong connection to the younger players and, and it's interesting how that moves on, you know, and the, and the young players are really open and, and wanting to improve and I really like their energy. And they're open to it more so, would you say, than the older group of players that you had? I think the older players were, but I think it kind of took a little bit longer for them to kind of trust me and and trust what I was doing and saying, whereas the younger ones are definitely more open. I think meditation and yoga, it's kind of accepted now, isn't it, Mm. Um, throughout society. Mm. And also, I feel like the younger players are in a more stressful situation because of social media and everything. It's really difficult for them. So I think they need more help and more ways of coping. And it's such a kind of a macho environment, though, isn't it? Football and, and presumably the dressing room. How open are the players to talk to you and be open about how they're feeling, their anxieties, or how does that work? Yeah, I think I probably, just because of the way I am and the way I, I work, it, that's one of the things that I like to offer the players, you know, a safe space where mm-hmm. they can open up and, and we can speak about their anxieties and fears. Mm-hmm. So, they are really open when you get them in that situation. It is a macho environment in other ways, as you say, but when I'm around, there's no sexism or anything like that. Your dad, obviously, footballing legend, Willie Donerkey, who actually had a poster of your dad in my bedroom for a very long time. That's when embarrassing. I was, you know, before I was, I shared a, a bedroom with my brother till I was eight. He's a massive City fan, my family okay. was. And on his side, I had, God knows what I had, I had probably bass City rollers and stuff on my side. And he had City and a picture of your dad. And uh, he was a legend in our house. But, I mean, your dad was radical, wasn't he, in terms of his approach in the 70s? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm good friends with Rodney Marsh, who he played with at City. And Rod said in the 70s, my dad, going to an away game, would read a book like mm. about Indian philosophy, spirituality. Mm. And at the time, no players read books. So it was like, what is he doing? And then I've had numerous stories about they used to have to share rooms in hotels and like players would wake <laughs> up at like 2am and he was there sat on his bed meditating, <laughs> thinking, what is he doing? Um, so when he, he came to Manchester when he was... 17 and signed for City and then I think he started to kind of question because people were like projecting godlike things onto him and he was like who am I really so he started doing meditation classes then um, and, and he's still doing it and now he's still teaching mm. and he, he'll kill me for saying this if he ever listens to this but <laughs> when he was I think he was 15 or 16 he had LSD um, all his friends were doing it all the time he did it once <laughs> and he said that he lost uh, he lost his ego and lost his, his normal way of being and it kind of opened up everything. And that gave him an appetite to want to know more and want to kind of go beyond. That's and that, that's quite a common experience mm. because in the in the 60s and 70s, there's mm. people at Harvard like Timothy Leary who were studying psychedelics. They then went to India and met some of the gurus there. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. And so, you've not done that, have you? No. (laughs) I'm not going to say I've had, but I've not. (laughs) 
Um, and yeah, obviously, you know, like you say, he was well read. I mean, I read uh, there's a fantastic article in the Scotsman which I read about him. Um, and he he was reading um, Tolstoy was one of the um, the books yeah. that he was in uh, War and Peace, and he said in the interview, happiness is the great quest. We're all looking for it. And that's something that you found you were also looking for, weren't you? So do you think that you're influenced by your dad, yeah. your dad's narrative around yeah, that? Definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely. And obviously, like when you're in part of a football family, it's very much uh, orientated towards the games. Yeah. So the whole week is around the games. Mm. And and because like you generally idolise your father and mother anyway, and then when your dad is idolised by other people, it, you know, it's just it's a natural thing, isn't it? Mm. But I feel very lucky that he's been a great dad. You know, I've been very lucky to have great parents and mm. a great secure upbringing that I feel is it's the best thing anyone can have. Because your dad, you know, you, you had that relationship with him, even though he obviously had big distractions, isn't he? And I mean, what was it like growing up with dad as being a famous footballer in Manchester in those days? It's hard to, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because mm. it's just normal. Mm. Um, but I know that I spent all my time with him you know in school holidays I'd be at the training ground um, I've still got vivid memories of Main Road when they had a massive bath there and I'd go in after training all the players had been in it and it was like really warm and there was like <laughs> dirt and grass <laughs> floating in it and it was heaven you know it was heaven I was just like loved it it was like a big swimmer pool but just see all the players and, and everything it's just amazing I, wow. I loved it oh god so it. you went in the bath after they'd been in it yeah <laughs> 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 in Swinton Bass where I used no, I to go. I don't think so. <laughs> and so did you want to be a footballer from being young then? Did you think that was going to be your yeah, path? Yeah, I mean, I was desperate. I was thinking about what we might talk about today. I think I was about 22, 23. I dislocated my ankle for the second time and I spent like a whole day in bed crying because I knew it was the, oh, end, the end of my dream. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, I've had a great life since then and I feel like that was supposed to be and the way it was. Um, but it was my dream, yeah, from a young age. But again, I think it's just wanting to like be like your dad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back now, it's, you know, to be a footballer, there's an, an idealistic way of how, how you feel it might be. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very challenging thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to emulate who my dad was as a person really rather than... Mm -hmm as a footballer yeah and do you think you've done that uh, in some that? ways yeah. yeah in some ways hopefully I'm better yeah <laughs> it's always a work in progress I have to move these things on I wanted to be my dad too but that got me into a right load of trouble I tell you um, so I mean just talking about that quest I think it's interesting because I remember we talked about you were also feeling that search and that need to understand what it was all about like your yeah. dad had yeah and you got the light bulb moment, didn't you, at one point, when you found there was somebody speaking, was it Nottingham? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Just before that, though, when I was actually a young footballer at Carlisle. Right. Um, and that was in, so that was in League One. And at the time, I was writing to the abbot of the local Buddhist monastery and asking him whether I should go and become a monk at the monastery. Right. So even, you know, even at that age, when I was 20, I had the kind of that, that draw. Was there a certain point where you thought I feel differently or I feel like I'm more spiritually connected than the people around me or what, what was that? 
I've never feel like I'm more spiritually connected, mm. but I've always had like a real thirst for knowledge and, you know, for like wanting to know what, what is the point in life and why am I here and, and all that kind of thing. Mm. But in terms of the question that you asked, the light bulb moment, I've had loads of light bulb moments, mm. but that one, I was searching at the time and the I Googled like gurus or something and it came up that this guy was in Nottingham the next day. Um, and he, he was the typical Indian guru with a long beard. And so my dad was in Ipswich and I phoned him and said, you fancy coming to see him? So we, we went there and we're on the fourth row, third or fourth row. And there's 500 people there, mainly Indian people. Um, and me and my dad were there. And he was talking, this is Sadhguru, his name is. He was talking about searching for happiness and how people search outwardly for happiness you know they have a house and they want a bigger house like a box a bigger box or, or whatever it is and I'd never I never knew anything about him until the day before and he kind of looks me in the eye and he goes you're not going to find that in Manchester this was in Nottingham <laughs> and I was like oh my god and he, he hooked me in in that moment obviously but even before that, like my energy system was going all over the show because he's like crazy, crazy guy. So then the next day, I was like, I need to, I need to see this guy again. And luckily, he was a, a football fan. So I phoned. I, I didn't know this, but I phoned like his assistant. I got through somehow and said, "Would you, would you fancy coming to Manchester? And you know, he can speak publicly, and then he'll come and meet the team." And she said, "Yeah, he's a big fan. He'll come." <laughs> And he came and met the team twice and I've been over to his ashram a few times and I've been on some of his courses as well, which are mind-blowing. There's one course that he does, Sadhguru. It's in America. It's like a three or four-day course and I'd recommend everybody to go there because he says that you it gives you a, a peep over the wall at life without the ego. And... For the first two or three days of the course, I'm thinking, ah, it's not happening, it's not <laughs> happening, not happening. And then in one moment, just bang. And I was like, oh my God, what incredible. What over the wall? It's very hard to describe. And I think you have to go over the wall yourself to know it. <laughs> it's like, how do you describe what an apple tastes like? But I was in this, we'd done this like long process and it was building up day after day. I was kind of in connection with this woman at the time after the process and suddenly like my normal sense of self and recognition disappeared and I felt like I was kind of at one with everything but kind of not even not at one with everything just everything because I'd lost the ego somehow and then it lasted for about a day and then I came back to my normal <laughs> ego <laughs> but could you tap back into that uh, not as powerfully as that. Um, not, I've had a couple of experiences since, but not as powerfully as that. Mm. Um, but I think that experience always kind of leaves an imprint on you, yeah. on your system. Yeah. It's something that you, that I'll never forget. And your energetic system's always aware of it. Mm. I had a moment um, in January when... I'm not telling many people about it. Once I ended up in St. Lucia, I was going for 10 days, a bit under the radar, and then end up staying for a month because it was locked down. And, <laughs> Typical, um, Lisa. <laughs> I know. It was just like, you know, seize the, seize the day. It had to be done. And I met, it was life-changing, you know, again, as I met some absolutely wonderful people, be friends for life. But we did quite a lot of yoga when we were out there. And I can't remember the type of yoga this particular session was, but it felt like it was sunset 
and we're on the deck near the water and it felt like I didn't exist. It felt like almost like air could pass through me that, you know, no sense of bodily sense in a way. Yeah. Never felt anything like that. It was absolutely incredible. And but I can remember that sense of how that felt. And that was, it made me feel that I didn't have to be frightened of anything really to feel that you could exist without anything just in space. Yeah. yeah. Well, yoga means union. And the goal of yoga is union. Um, and, and I feel like that state that you're um, describing, that is the goal of yoga. Mm-hmm. And according to certain people, then that's available to everyone at any time. And, you know, I've studied Buddhism and, and other religions as well. And the Buddha said the same thing. Mm-hmm. He said that life is suffering. Life is dukkha, he called it. But ultimately, if you go beyond that, then that's where the joy and happiness is. And that's what everyone's seeking mm-hmm. in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It's quite amazing. I couldn't do a silent retreat, though, Danny, you know that. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I think you'd struggle. <laughs> Well, that was another experience I had with Sadhguru. He um, he did, a, I think it was a nine or ten day sil- well sil- silent retreat. I thought it was all silent. So we'll get there. And it, it was in February in India. And they said you need to take extra covers because it's like an open air kind of massive space. And I thought, well, it won't be that cold because it's in India. <laughs> um, so the first night I'm there and I, I'm absolutely <laughs> shivering the whole night. And I couldn't ask anyone for any extra covers, obviously. <laughs> it's silent. Sign language. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm shivering to death thinking I'm never going to get through this nine days. But eventually um, it got a little bit warmer at nights. But that was another kind of mad experience because for the first two and a half two and a half days so Sadhguru comes out there was 800 people there in this massive thing you're all wearing white you've all got a white mattress so there's 800 mattresses all over the floor and you stay on the mattress the whole time apart from going to the toilet and he comes out and he goes right we're just going to do a mantra and and I want you to like shout it and it was Om Namah Shivaya Om Namah Shivaya and they, he had lots of monks at the front all banging the drums. And he said, right, I want you to give it everything. So really shout it. So I'm sat there and everyone else is there and like shouting it. And this goes on for about four hours. And he goes, I'm exhausted. And he goes, right, when you go to sleep, I want you to keep it running in your mind, but you don't have to say it. So keep it running. And then tomorrow and the day after, we're going to do it again for 18 hours what? each day. So I'm thinking, this is mad. What is, like, how can this be any good? Because I always thought, like, a mantra, it was the power of the sound, like, you know, the the, the vibration of the sound that did, did the work. Whereas this, I was just shouting as loud mm. as I could. And then a very strange thing happened. After the second day of just this shouting and shouting, I think I was exhausted, but I started getting these visions. I started getting visions that, like, I've never seen before, I'll never see again and I can't quite recollect it now but it was kind of colours and different like lands and towns and spaces that I've never seen before and that happened the whole of the second day when I was doing the, the chanting or shouting and at the end of the second day um, we stopped and went into silence for eight days and the vision stopped I've never seen them again God, it's that's crazy. exhausting listening to oh, that Oh, it's terrible So <laughs> then the eight days you sat there on this white mattress <laughs> Uh, basically watching the breath for eight days. And what did you get out of that? <laughs> Saw <whole> back. <laughs> <laughs> did you not feel angry at any point thinking, what the hell am I doing here? What have I signed up to? Because it's quite, that's frightening when I think about that. Yeah, I didn't feel angry. Um, 
uh, like obviously like at that point that was kind of like the fifth course with Sadhguru so I had a lot right. of faith in him yeah. and I'd done other silent retreats but it was tough mm. very tough I'll never forget um, it's probably about 20 years ago now I was in Australia and I, I said right I want to go and spend the weekend in a, a, a monastery and I went in the hut on my own for two days and it was so difficult I thought I'd be able to do it easily mm was so difficult just being there with your own mind for two days doing nothing mm. um i think i'm better at it now but God, that's tough. you know so like the some of these monks they they spend 10 years on their own in a cave it's no. it, it's the ultimate thing you know for anybody to do i think it's so challenging and what going back to the abbot that you wrote to what did he say about whether you should become a monk or not he said no he said Why that did he... he said because i was doing football and love football and was a footballer then that was my calling and I should serve people in that in that way mm. and I, I'm kind of grateful that he gave me that advice because I feel like you know I'm in the right place now mm. and I've got a good rich life where I help people mm. and I found out about a place in the Himalayas where one of my other teachers went and if I knew about that I would have been there in a shot seriously yeah why because at the time, like, I wasn't totally sure about Buddhism because it felt like it was a little bit kind of like idolizing the Buddha. Mm. Um, and I wasn't sure about the techniques, but this place in the Himalayas, um, it, it's the techniques I would do. And, uh, you know, I'd be there maybe when I retire or something. So, <laughs> but that's meant it's that sliding doors, isn't it? It's how you, you know, yeah. you like, you, you yeah. know, you're that convinced that you would be, you would have taken that route if you'd gone yeah. there. Yeah. It's interesting that um, Sadhguru said to you, you'll never find what you're looking for in Manchester. We'll come mm. on to that because mm. this podcast is really about everyone finding exactly what they want in Manchester. But is he saying there that it's not the external stuff, it's what you find inside? Is he st- Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's not it's not looking for the bigger house or the bigger box. It's ultimately, mm. you know, that experience that you described in St. Lucia mm. is finding that because in that, like all of your anxieties and fears and doubts, just dissolve away mm. don't they mm. and and you can carry that with you wherever mm. you go definitely everything you need you have that's yeah. it is that isn't it yeah. and you know that you've got those resources and i think you do come in alone and you go out alone and i think if you can learn to love yourself and value the time that you spend within yourself as well it's just it's a rich way to live isn't it yeah i mean i'm like i'm happy now and ever in my life and and I think that's down to setting values and setting boundaries. And as Buddha said, doesn't it, no matter who has said it or where you read it, or even if I've said it, unless it agrees with your own reason, yeah. your own common sense, yeah. you shouldn't believe it. And that's absolutely the way that I really try and live my life now, rather than having to check in with a million people for their opinion before I decide that yeah. it's right for me. Yeah, that's good. That's great to hear. Mm. I mean, it's difficult to do as well, isn't mm. it? Because we're part of a culture, part of a society where there's all kinds of norms yeah. uh, and all kinds of biases and the mm. way we've brought up influences the way we think and behave and act. Mm. So it's always great to kind of check in on all those mm. parts of ourselves that are got biased. Tell the story about taking Sadhguru into the changing room at Everton, though. So he didn't uh, he didn't come into the changing room. Right. So the night before the derby, I know oh we're playing the derby on the Sunday, mm. and on the Friday night he gave a talk in Manchester, and it was like it was a two hour talk, 
and it was really deep. And I'd already, I went and see David Moyes. I said, look, there's this guy who's a really good speaker and I'd like him to speak to the players. Obviously, my <laughs> own intention was just to meet him, but I thought I'll use, use that. And he goes, um, as long as he's not like the Dalai Lama, <laughs> uh, you can bring him. And I'm thinking in my head, he's not like the Dalai Lama. He's a hundred times worse. <laughs> so I'm like, no, no, he's not. Don't worry. He's a good speaker. He'll, he'll be all right. So... So on the Friday, he does this talk in Manchester at the university and it was so deep and so philosophical and a couple of the players actually went to it and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, if he's like this tomorrow night at the team hotel where he was going to speak before the derby on the Sunday, I am dead meat. <laughs> so after the talk, um, his assistant comes and gets me and we go in this room and, and we're sat there for an hour just chatting and he was basically asking me about football and like he was talking about Lionel Messi, how he's a great player and he watched Barcelona the night before and stuff like that. And I realised afterwards that he was actually kind of gathering information from me about what he was going to speak about the next night to the players. So he came to the training ground the next day in the morning and I'm, I'm thinking, how can I get out of this? How, ca how can I crawl out of this hole I've got myself into? Um, but he... He came in and he drove into the training ground and I never really feel anxious, but because I was worried about what was going to happen, I was feeling really anxious. And then when he came, it all dissolved as soon as I saw him because he's got that impact. Mm. Um, so he came and he was in these sandals, in his Indian robes, and he went out kicking the ball around <laughs> with some of the players before training. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> I am dying. Like David Moyes is going to go mad. He's going to go mad. Luckily, I don't think he saw. And I managed to get him away and we, we spoke in a different room. So we went to the hotel it was in Formby and he, he comes in in his robes and he, he looked, he, when he speaks, he looks incredible and there's this sparkling energy to him. And he started speaking to the lads and I'm kind of like looking around, seeing what the reaction is. And I've never seen them before, like the energy and the peace in the players, it was just unbelievable. You, you could just sense it in the room. He transmits this energy. It's so powerful. And he spoke for about half an hour about football Part of the things that he spoke about, the players still speak about today, you know, like Tim Cahill, Tim Howard. Um, we were playing Liverpool and he told the players when we're walking out of the tunnel to be really friendly to the Liverpool players and kind of give them a rose, but in barbed wire. That was that was his words. And he said, like, with the goalie, for example, if he's got, I think the one of the lads said he's got two daughters, it's like, speak about his daughters and get him off guard. So we get to the game and... After that, we, I took him back to his hotel in Liverpool and we went out for an Indian. And you can imagine on a Saturday night in Liverpool with this Indian guy in <laughs> Liverpool, I was getting abuse from all these drunk scousers. But uh, the night he said, oh, tomorrow's going to be a very good day for Everton, don't worry. And he was in the stand and we scored two goals in the first 10, 15 minutes, 1-2-0. And then after the game, he didn't come in the dressing room because he had to fly off back to India. But all the players in, in there were singing Sad Guru, Sad Guru. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> it was funny. And what do you think, that, what was that? What was the difference, the different energy then that we'd normally have for a derby? Yeah. Yeah, I think you know Everton um, have got a bit had a bit of an inferiority complex mm. towards Liverpool, and I think he just brought this different energy and really relaxed them and allowed them to go beyond their limited beliefs. and And we got a good start in the game, and I think it was the only time we beat Liverpool in probably around ten years. 
That's it. You need him on a retainer. I know. Well, he came again um, about a year later and we played Tottenham the next day and we won 2-0 again really? at home. Yeah. yeah. So Moyes was convinced, was he, after that? I don't I'm know. You'd have to ask him. <laughs> I think he's a bit upset, really, because after the game he was saying, why are you, why are you praising him? I helped. <laughs> it's not him, it's me. <laughs> Um, and also, I mean, Everton, I can see that camaraderie I mean, from the social media and our, and our comments that you've got a really special relationship, haven't you, with the players there? Um, I mean, when Yerry Mina came, we, you were teaching. I mean, he's a, you're very good friends, aren't you? Yeah. And, you know, you, those videos you post of you trying to, like, you're teaching him English and stuff <laughs> like that. So, I mean, your role goes beyond. It's Your role's to be a friend, isn't it, as well, to the players and, and new players that come into the club? Yeah, I think... Obviously, in my role, it's easier to be that friend because if you're a coach or a manager, then you have to, like, you know, take them out of the team and stuff like that, so it's harder. But, you know, it's an amazing privilege. I think Joseph Yobo was the first kind of different culture that came into the club, and he was from Nigeria but came through France. And at that time, he came round every morning and shook everyone's hand and said good morning to you, and that was completely different. And I got really close to him, and now we've got, you know, Yeri, Brazilians, uh, Portuguese, everything. And it's just a great, great thing. Mm-hmm. I've actually, the last couple of weeks, I've been working with Richarlison and he's a Brazilian. And he's like, he doesn't really say much to people because he's quite shy and his English wasn't great, but it's getting better now. And I've like, I've had a great time with him, getting to know him and bring him out. And yeah, so it's a lucky thing that I have. And you had your son, haven't you, particularly Theo, who's just gone off to Cambridge. Those yeah. pictures are amazing. I can't yeah. believe it, seeing him grow up for the last six years. And he's been very much involved, hasn't he, in the change room around the plays and stuff. And they come to your house for tea and stuff, haven't they, I think? Yeah. yeah, quite soon after Yeri came and Andre Gomez, we went into Elnacot in Ancoats. Mm-hmm. The chef there was Colombian and they couldn't believe that Yeri was there. But we went in for this meal with <laughs> Theo and my family yeah. and... It was just great. Like, we're playing all these games around the table, like different word games and stuff. It was just hilarious. <laughs> but Yeri's just, like, unbelievable. Yeah. He's so funny. Oh, he is. So oh, he's funny. just his carrots is amazing. <laughs> Elnacott, speaking of Elnacott, what an amazing restaurant that is. Yeah, I, I went recently. It. Disco Cabbage. Yeah. Just yeah. the best ever, yeah. yeah. And then in terms of just going back to and other restaurants, I think, and we're talking about you wouldn't find what you wanted in Manchester. You found your wife, didn't you, walking up the steps of... In Machinaire, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I love Machinaire. that. That was a great place, wasn't it? Yeah. So, just tell us about that because I think it's a lovely story. So, uh, it was a long time ago now. How long? Over twenty years ago. And at the time, I was about twenty-seven, I think. I noticed that I'd been going out into Manchester with my friends, and I was looking for a girl. Like I was, <laughs> I was looking for it. And on this Friday, I was thinking, "What are you doing? What's going on here?" Why are you looking outside of yourself for this happiness? So I kind of sat myself down and, and vowed to let go of that and stop looking. Um, so the next day we, <laughs> we, we walk into Machinaire and there's probably about 20 steps up to Machinaire and we, I get halfway up and I just turned to my friend and said, I'm going to marry that girl over there. Um, and then we got speaking that night and eventually about, a year later that we got married and we're still married now. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's just like you never have those conversations where you think 
I can't believe it and it must be complete fluke but it's not fluke is it because the people that you need whether that's in a romantic situation or business or friendship those people arrive don't they yeah. at you, right in front of you when yeah. you need them and why does that happen do you think what's the, what's the is that because you're putting stuff out into the universe I suppose yeah is it? I think so yeah I, and it seems like it was probably important that I let go of it yeah I was kind of seeking it too much mm. and then when I let go of it it kind of opened up the space and then it came. In Machinaire, the most iconic place I think one of Manchester's <laughs> ever seen. One of them. Um, and you've worked with some really high profile people. So people like Tony Bellew, Phil Neville, Leighton Baines, John Stones. And they've all said that the work you've done with them has been life changing. So what is it that makes such a great coach? I don't know. Like my son has asked me this before and it's hard to know. But I think that it's about presence. You know, I've spent so much of my time practicing presence like I've been lucky that when I was about 17 I think I was taught meditation and I've practiced it ever since twice a day so it kind of brings a quality of attention um, and I think it kind of helps to let the ego go as well so when the ego is not there I think that's what a great coach is mm. but there was one famous coach who once said that a great coach would be a lamppost so basically it's about listening mm. and listening with your whole being. Mm. And I think, you know, it's rare that someone kind of listens to you fully mm. without the mind jumping ahead to the, what they want to say or the mm. next question or anything like that. So that was a lesson that I really value. Mm. John Amici was on the podcast recently and one of the lines that he, well, I think he wrote almost a chapter on it, and he questioned whether or not he'd written too much, but I said I definitely didn't think he had, was the line, swivel your chair, so that when somebody speaks to you, swivel your chair in their direction, because your attention has got the ability to, or lack of it, to bring somebody down and make them feel really negatively about themselves or devalued, but your attention in the right direction, if you swivel your chair and give them that attention, it gives them, they feel very valued and it's such a small thing. Yeah. If you don't quite swivel your chair to look yeah. at that person in the eyes, I mean, yeah. that's tiny movement. Yeah. It's got massive impact, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, it is a small thing, but it's everything, mm. really. And, you know, with phones these days as well, it's like attention is getting less and less mm. trained. And for young people, I think it's really difficult um, and, and the more you can train that attention and the more you can kind of have, have an open heart and really listen. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening now, if someone's listening to this or you're listening, you can feel what's happening in your body mm. and it just takes you to a different level. And somehow the people sense that when you do it mm. and yeah. there's a deeper connection. Yeah. I did something recently on a retreat was on where you look at the person, is it left eye to left eye? Or left eye to, I think we had to hold the gaze for, I mean, it was like five minutes and we were all going, that's most horrendously embarrassing, excruciating thing. <laughs> Nobody wanted to do it. And honestly, it was the most moving experience because um, I did it with somebody that I'd met previously in St. Lucia, my friend Grant's, and we went through, after we'd settled into it, we went through like a continuum of emotion and we both got sad at the same time. We both got, you know, it was, it was, but so vulnerable to put yourself in that position. But to have that five minutes where you literally felt like you're staring into somebody's soul and let somebody else look into you, it's, yeah, yeah, it was well, pretty mind-blowing. that's a very powerful practice mm. and I do that quite a lot with the players actually. Okay. Um, 
it's funny. There was a there's a goalie that I that I work with. Um, he, he's not Everton anymore, uh, <laughs> but I used to do it with him. And probably for the first five, maybe five or ten times we'd do it, he'd just crack up laughing, mm. and he couldn't stop laughing. And I was just saying like the practice is just to allow whatever emotion comes, just mm. allow, allow, allow. Mm. And then eventually, after the tenth session, he was able to hold the concentration. Mm. And through that connection, it increases your, in so many ways, your awareness and your attention. It's one of the most powerful things, I think, for players to help them focus and concentrate. Mm. And hard for that macho culture is to make yourself vulnerable. I mean, I can imagine there'd be quite a lot of initial resistance to doing something like that. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised really? though. Like, yeah, and I've worked with rugby players as well. You know, <laughs> well. And, yeah, even more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who'd have known? <laughs> But I think, you know, because they have to, like, put on this false app that they're these macho kind of guys and they're not. Any opportunity to know yourself beyond that Mm. is a gift, isn't it? Mm, Absolutely. You've worked with Phil Neville, haven't you? And yeah. he's was he was very painful. Emotional. Oh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, go on. What are you gonna no, say? Sorry, but it's just that, and you know, people like that, Ryan Giggs. I mean, the, I know that obviously the into yoga and mindfulness, and actually, yeah. so it is a, probably a, just a preconception that that's not the case, and that it's just all slapping each other on the back and like his most not the case. Course. Yeah, it's yeah. not like that at mm. all. Like I say, they're just normal people. Mm. And Phil, when he came to Everton, I was really lucky because he said that he wanted a yoga teacher. And luckily I was mm. a yoga teacher, so we got really close mm. and he's still a great friend. And we uh, were in a, a chat with Andre Gomez, who worked with him at Valencia. Mm. And that, we, we watch his results every week and hope he's doing well. Oh, that's so nice. I mean, that's and the whole thing, isn't it, about those relationships that you created? It's great that they, even though the immediacy or perhaps the setup and the dynamics change, that you still have those deep friendships. yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's been great at Everton, you know, we've got staff there who have been there for, I think, 30 or 40 years. And that's like a consistent thing, Mm. part of the culture, and it kind of keeps the cultural values going. Mm. Mm. I think it's really important. So, And in terms of values, I mean, I know from working with you, deeply principled, and that, you know, uh, David Moy said, you're a very trustworthy man, I read that. (laughs) That's a compliment from him. (laughs) I was going to say that, wow. Um, And then, and Sagru referred to you as gentle and loving, and I think I would definitely agree with that. What values do you live by, and and where would you say that you've developed those from? I think uh, the idea of truth is very important to me, and it's always been there really and sometimes it can be a bad thing because if you get kind of too sold on what truth actually is it can become a problem because like what really is truth Mm. Um, but I've had that from a young age I remember when I was 10 I watched the film the Gandhi film and I was just sobbing watching that film and I've quite early on I read his autobiography and his his whole life was about experimenting to try and find truth Mm. um and I'm not sure whether he got there, but he he lived an incredible life, and people like that have always inspired me. Mm. Um, so I think that is one of them, mm. at least. I was looking at your values. Let me see what I've got here. <laughs> I'll be interested uh, to know. <laughs> yeah. So one of them is walk a mile in another's shoes, mm. and it's we don't judge others, we listen, we empathise, we learn, and that's something that 
you know, is really important mm. that I try to do. Mm. And obviously, like, the mind judges things all the time, judges yeah. yourself, judges other people. Uh, but just to kind of keep an eye on that and, mm. and try and be open to other people, whoever they mm. may appear yeah. to be. Yeah, and the other one is plant trees you'll never see. Create a legacy out of respect for those who follow you. Mm. Um, for that, it's more like, you know, you never know the impact that you might have on a person um you can have a connection with someone and an interaction and you never know what what will happen from that mm. it can lay a seed that has massive implications in the future and you know that's something that i, I love to try to do mm. yeah that's very true and it's the small things isn't it? it's not the big gestures it's just no. that you don't know which bit of your interaction can create that impact or having that lasting yeah. legacy with that person yeah yeah, that's my exactly. favourite. Um, but both those two, I think, and it, you know, you do have to keep on top of walking a mile in another person's shoes because we we all think we probably do that, but in actual fact, it's very easy, isn't it, just to put your ego in the way and not actually put those shoes on. In terms of purpose, obviously, we talk about you know our, our purpose, and it was this interesting because you and I've discussed it, and then one time you had the opportunity to put a question to Sadhguru on video, didn't you? And you asked me, what would I ask him? And I did ask you, first of all, if you could ask him if he should move house or not. <laughs> you remember that? Well, he, didn't, he didn't know. He wasn't sure himself. But um, I actually, um, I think it's along the lines of how do we work towards finding our true purpose in the world? And, and is it possible to know when we've reached it? And you kind of paraphrase that and ask a similar question. What did he say? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So basically, well, I remind you then. I think, God, yeah. Do you know what he said? Yeah. Yeah. yeah go yeah. on then. Tell well, me. Like, tell like, me. He, basically, he was saying, and it's so interesting, and I think it's such, it's so true that it's about how do you balance your spiritual life with paying the bills? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's we've got to do both. Yeah. But what uh, he was talking about something else, wasn't he? He was talking about. How, like, I think he was saying not to get kind of sold on this big idea yeah. of a big purpose. Absolutely that. And wherever you are yeah. is where you're supposed to be. Totally. And the fact that that's where I think people feel like it's overwhelming. If you say, you've asked people what the purpose is, very few people really know what that is. No. But you, if you feel that you're living your life with purpose, that's the difference, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, if you are making sure that you're learning about yourself and you're doing work on yourself and that you, you are being open to other people's needs but you recognise the fact that that's got a place but you've also have got to make sure that you fulfil your own responsibilities and you do the what can be mundane stuff we we all have to do that we've not got the luxury of just living with purpose we've yeah. also got some you know as human beings in our lifetime we've got to keep those building blocks in place in order for us to use our platform yeah. so you were saying don't beat yourself up you can't yeah. you don't have to have a specific purpose yeah yeah and that kind of brings my mind back to what i said about my dad you know my dad was a footballer mm. um but he was a good dad mm. and for me that was the most important thing that he was a good dad yeah so that leads us into quick fire round okay Manchester. So, first of all, where in Greater Manchester would you choose to sit and meditate? I'd probably like to go in like the centre, like in Piccadilly Square or something, and then see if I could keep my focus. So it'd be a challenge. Would you ever do that? Would you be? Have you got the confidence to just go and oh, rock yeah. up somewhere and sit and meditate and see what happens? Yeah, I've done that a lot. Have when you? I, yeah, when I used to live in New York, I did that a lot. 
Um, but now, like, I don't, I don't do it. But I, I won't, I won't I be shy. I think you should. I think we need to see you in Piccadilly Gardens meditating. <laughs> we're going to make sure. <laughs> I've actually, I've seen a few people before, like at airports and stuff. And when I've seen them, it's, it's kind of really drawn me in, and I've wanted to join them. Mm. Um, yeah, so it, it draws you in the energy, doesn't it? Definitely. I think honestly, give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Will you join me? I want to know what I will do. Yeah, I will. You know what? I think it'd be an amazing place to to meditate as well on one of say the top of one of Deansgate Square towers or something yeah. like that, where you literally, you know, you're so yeah. high up. Yeah. over Manchester. Although um, I used to go to Phil's house and he was on like yeah fifty odd floor, mm. wasn't he? In that, and it used to. Uh, move in the yeah, wind yeah. so that would be a bit, bit off-putting <laughs> <laughs> sounds a bit strange that <laughs> um, describe a Mancunian in three words real gritty fresh fresh why I kind of feel like there's like a style in Manchester um, and kind of the, its own style mm. um, I'm not sure fresh is the right word but it, it came to my mind so it must be but yeah, it's some kind of style that I like. Yeah, and I'm not sure as a clean living vegetarian, this is the best question for you. But what would you order at the chippy? Halloumi and chips. Where does halloumi and chips? Uh, there was one in sale that did it during lockdown. <laughs> you need to share that information. With I'm having halloumi tonight. I've literally been thinking about it all day. Um, what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? I think it's the people. Mm. obviously. I did my physio training at MRI and recently, I can't say the story in full, but one of the players had an accident and he ended up in MRI and I had to go there. It was a Monday morning. I had to go there first thing in Monday and I'd not been there for ages and I just could not believe how helpful the people there were. Mm. They were just so helpful and, you know, we they looked after the player in, in ways that I, I was blown away wow. and, and even before... Like I was with the player, I was nobody, but they were just so helpful. And that's what I really love about Manchester. Mm. And I think like the down to earthness and it's a bit gritty. Mm. I lived in New York, like I said, and I think the similarities yeah. to New York and Manchester. And also it's like, it's quite cosmopolitan at the same time. Mm. So mm. I do love it. Oh. So going back to plant trees you'll never see, what would you want your legacy to be? I guess like my aim has always been to kind of what, the gurus called realization so that has to be the ultimate aim and when you get that you can have a bigger impact on people mm. so it's it's a big aim but why not and what's realization what do you mean i think it's like it's hard to know because unless un, unless you've got it right. you don't know but i think it's the state that we spoke about earlier yeah. permanently mm. i think that's what it is mm. so you go permanently beyond the ego mm. basically that's something to aim for, as you say. It's the ultimate aim, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Either that or a big house. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, a Ferrari or something. That well, was what... One of the players had a Ferrari in today. Oh, really? One of the physios was driving it down the road. It's quite funny. <laughs> um, your support and um, encouragement has been life-changing for me and for Roland Dransfield and we did our work around values at the same time I was working on values and boundaries for myself and you said to me at the time your life will take off and I didn't believe you and then all of a sudden 
it did. And it's not taken six years, actually. It's six years we started working together. But I want to thank you very much for that. And I'd urge any listeners to the podcast that if, you, if you're feeling held back by certain repeat patterns or certain repeat people in some cases and that you feel that you've got a potential in life that you're not fulfilling, I'd really urge you to look Danny up. Um, just don't ask him on the phone what he does. Mm. <laughs> or in person, yeah. or on video, or... <laughs> but thanks so much for joining me, Danny. I've really loved it. Thanks, Lucy. It's always great to see you. Danny Donachie built the city by knowing that everything you need, you have. By being happy in Manchester, but not seeking happiness in Manchester and by taking an Indian guru to team talk at Goodison Park before the Merseyside derby. On the next episode of We Built This City, I'll be joined by iconic Manchester illustrator Stanley Chow. That episode will be available on November the 4th. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you to drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.